0: Welcome to Prescribed Listening from the University of Toledo Medical Center. Each week, UTMC providers sharing insight into their medical specialty. This week, Dr. Saqib Masroor. My name is Saqib Masroor. I'm the Chief of Cardiothoracic Surgery at University of Toledo Medical Center, and I'm the Associate Professor at the School of Medicine. Atrial fibrillation, or AFib as it is known, or some people call it AF, um, it's the irregular heartbeat of the upper chambers of the heart. As you may imagine, the lower chambers of the heart are the ones that pump blood out of the heart. And if they do not beat at regular rate, then that is not compatible with life. But the upper chambers are a conduit for blood flow to the lower chambers, and therefore they can fibrillate and patients can live with that rhythm. Most of people uh, do that without any hemodynamic problems or problems with their blood pressure. However, this rhythm can be associated with a lot of problems long-term. Many people do not know that they have atrial fibrillation. Um, The other thing is there's a little windsock-like cavity in the upper chamber on the left side called the left atrial appendage. And if the heart chambers are not squeezing blood out, blood can stagnate in that windsock or just sit there. And when blood sits anywhere, it makes clots. And those clots can find their way down into the lower chamber, out of the heart, and can cause stroke and clots in the legs and bowels, causing um, potentially fatal problems. Also, um, some people do not tolerate this irregular heartbeat very well. And the heart goes into rapid rates, and they feel short of breath, and they cannot do anything. They're fatigued. And thirdly, long-term, some people develop heart failure because of this irregular rhythm. So this rhythm, while compatible with life, can be dangerous in many people. It's been associated, if you look teleologically, with the size of uh, human body and the size of the heart. Uh, If you look at small animals like cats and dogs, uh, they are never in atrial fibrillation. Humans are atrial fibrillation about maybe 1% of us. Uh, Horses have atrial fibrillation. Most of them have atrial fibrillation. Um, So the size of the heart and how much blood it has to pump out is an indication of which species will develop atrial fibrillation. Um, High blood pressure, heart disease, coronary artery disease, valvular disease, diabetes, they're all associated with a higher incidence of atrial fibrillation. Um, And also obstructive sleep apnea uh, is associated with uh, atrial fibrillation asymptomatic or ones don't have symptoms. um, They really don't know atrial fibrillation until they go into the hospital for some other reason or they develop a sudden stroke and they find out they have atrial fibrillation. Uh, But the ones that do develop symptoms, the most common symptoms are shortness of breath, fatigue, not being able to do as much as they used to do. There are two things when you talk about treating atrial fibrillation. One is treating the rhythm, making the person not stay in atrial fibrillation anymore and the other is to prevent the complications associated with afib so antiarrhythmic drugs are not very good at maintaining rhythm long term uh, part of the problem is they can have adverse effects and patients may, may not tolerate so even if they work patient gets irregular other other irregular rhythms or uh, uh, they have other Toxicity or adverse effects related to it, and they cannot take those drugs long term. Uh, so, antiarrhythmic drugs are not very helpful in keeping the person in sinus rhythm. Beta blockers is a class of medicine that slows down the heart rate. So, patients who have AFib associated with rapid heart rate, they can benefit um, by uh, slowing down their heart rates. So, that's symptomatic treatment. That's not treating atrial fibrillation. The other complication, as I mentioned earlier is um, the risk of making clots inside the heart, and which can go and cause stroke. To prevent that, traditionally, for many years, the treatment has been blood thinners. So you keep the blood thin so it doesn't clot. And traditionally, that has been better than no blood thinners in reducing the risk of stroke, although it comes at a risk of bleeding complications. But that's been how people have managed this for a long time. The history of interventions for treatment of AFib really goes back to the surgery for atrial fibrillation. Uh, Dr. Cox uh, did a lot of research and developed a procedure which went through many iterations and became the Cox-Maze procedure where um, you'd stop the heart and cut the upper chambers into different pieces and then sew them back again. The idea being that the scar that forms as a result of those cuts prevents the spread of these irregular rhythms and treats atrial fibrillation. Uh, And that has been the gold standard for the treatment of AFib since the early 90s. However, as you can imagine, it's a big operation. Um, And uh, for many patients who don't even know they have AFib or they can live along with just blood thinners, uh, there was hesitation in recommending that surgery for someone. Then minimally invasive procedures came along. Uh, and Dr. Cox himself uh, did some work using cryoenergy, meaning freezing the heart. Instead of cutting and sewing, freezing the heart along the same lines, and freezing did the same thing. It killed the cells, and the dead cells were replaced by a scar. And that procedure has also been very successful. Cryomaze procedure is a minimally invasive procedure um, that uh, involves creating similar lines to the Cox-Maze procedure inside the heart Um, and then uh, uh, freezing the tissue along those lines. But also at the same time, we occlude the left atrial appendage. The windsock that I was talking about earlier, we we totally occlude that space by either putting a clip from the outside and the clip uh, just pinches it shut. So there's no more space for the blood to just sit and make a clot. So combined with um, the cryomase procedure, which has a success rate, uh, in excess of 90% in treating atrial fibrillation and combining that with the clip uh, the risk of complication from atrial fibrillation are significantly reduced in patients who undergo this procedure so we've done this procedure for a number of years uh, and i've uh, been involved in it for more than more than 15 years and um, pretty much anyone who has symptoms from atrial fibrillation and is unable to be treated uh, with antiarrhythmic drugs or cardioversions, which is uh, cardioversion is basically you uh, uh, con- uh, you give deliver a DC electrical shock that uh, resets the heart rhythm. And uh, many times, atrial fibrillation in its early stages of development can be converted into sinus rhythm. Atrial fibrillation uh, can be treated with cryomase in most patients, except in the very elderly and frail. Um, and especially people who um, cannot take blood thinners for other reasons. Um, I know some police officers developed atrial fibrillation, and they didn't want to take blood thinners. They would be given a desk job, um, pilots. Um, so, so certain professions, even if they're low risk, um, they prefer to have not be in sinus them because that's a, uh, a that's a problem for them keeping their job. We really um, consider it for many patients who have symptoms of heart failure or decreased heart function or who are symptomatic and are not able to maintain their endurance capacities because of AFib are candidates for this. Um, And then around 1995 and later on, some research was done using catheter ablations. That procedure has evolved over time. The technique and the lesion sets, the lines that they make in in the cath lab, by the uh, electrophysiologists, have evolved over time, and the success rate of that procedure has improved. That is for a subset of patients who are more likely to benefit from that. Not every patient is a candidate for procedure. So that is a catheter ablation for atrial fibrillation using, most of the time, radiofrequency ablation. Um, more recently, um, cryo balloons have been used, uh, which are similar to the catheter ablation except. Um, instead of uh, using catheters to burn the tissues around the cryoballones, freeze the tissues and try to recreate uh, the effect of scarring as we did in the surgical cryomase procedure. Catheter ablation is a um, safe procedure. Um, as I mentioned, the uh, procedure itself has undergone some iterations and now it's it's, it's very safe. Um, but it's uh, a it's, uh, relatively useful in uh, people with paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Paroxysmal's uh, AF patients are those who have episodes of AFib which don't last very long, and then they can convert. But during those, those paroxysms, they're very symptomatic. Um, usually, it is understood that that is an earlier stage of AFib. If it stays on over a long time, they become permanent or chronic atrial fibrillation. Um, and persistent or chronic atrial fibrillation is one that stays in atrial fibrillation and can be treated with either catheter or surgical ablation. Uh, the third type of atrial fibrillation is permanent atrial fibrillation, which is ones who do not respond to any intervention. So that is something that we don't really know until we've done a procedure. Uh, so permanent AF patients, we don't really know who they are until we do an intervention on them. But of the two Paroxysmal and persistent atrial fibrillation patients. Paroxysmals often have very high success rates with catheter ablation, um, up to 80%, or some people say more, but 70 to 80% or more success in atrial fibrillation. The persistent atrial fibrillation people, especially those with morbid obesity or who have been in AFib for a long time, they don't have such high success rates. Their success rates with, a, with catheter ablation may be less than 50% or 40%. Um, Whereas in surgical cryomase procedure, even those patients have very high success rates in excess of 80-85%. So catheter ablation is very useful. Uh, It's less invasive. It takes a longer time. um, But it's less invasive, Uh, you're going through a groin. uh, Whereas in uh, cryomase procedure, it's a little more invasive uh, because you have to be on heart-lung machine through the groin. And you have a small incision between the ribs on the right side, and you have to be in the hospital three to five days, uh, typically. Um, But catheter ablation, you're in the hospital maybe a day or two. So the idea of preventing clot formation in the left atrial appendage, um, and how to prevent that. One was to keep blood thinner so the blood doesn't clot. But as I said, it's associated long-term with bleeding problems. So the idea was to fill that sac and prevent and obliterate the space. So watchman device is a little inverted umbrella. Basically, it obliterates the the windsock deformity. Uh, But there's a foreign material sitting inside, so you have typically the FDA guidelines say you have to take blood thinners for 45 days until a smooth inner lining forms on the watchman device and the fabric of the watchman device is not exposed to blood anymore. After that, blood thinners can be stopped and, and that has been shown to be equivalent to taking blood thinners. Um, uh, There's lower risk of bleeding after Watchman device implantation. um, And it is, uh, like I said, it has similar success rate in terms of long-term stroke rate as uh, taking blood thinners. It's approved for uh, patients who cannot take blood thinners or have contraindication or adverse reactions to blood thinners. While the Watchman device sits inside the windsock, the left atrial appendage, and obliterates it. The atrial clip is uh, literally just a clip that goes from outside and pinches the atrial appendage shut right at the base. So there's nothing sitting inside the heart. Um, There's no foreign material inside the heart, and you don't have to take blood thinners because there's no foreign surface exposed to blood. And uh, we can do it with a keyhole incision. Basically, it's not an incision, just three ports, and uh, it's relatively straightforward and easily tolerated by people. Typical length of stay in the hospital is about a day or two or at most three days. Um, The only problem with that procedure is people who've had previous heart surgery, they have scars around the heart, and those are not a candidate for uh, the left atrial appendage clip. The Watchman device is actually a good option for those patients because you don't have to worry about the outside scar. You just go inside and deploy the Watchman device. So um, every device has its own strengths and weaknesses, and the doc and we can choose which one is best for which patient. Uh, th- th- there's a rare type of patient who cannot take blood thinners at all. Um, if they is called a cerebral amyloid. For those, again, Watchman device would not be an option because during the procedure, you have to take blood thinners. People who've had previous heart surgery cannot have the clip, so Watchman device is a good option for them. <clears throat> People who've had acute stroke because of fatal fibrillation, um, the neurology literature says that they're at high risk for having another stroke in the first four weeks after the first stroke. That is the time, again, where uh, Watchman device is a higher risk because of blood thinners, whereas we can perform the CLIP procedure on those patients. Uh, if they're reasonably recovered and reasonably good candidates after the first stroke, and it's not catastrophic, then we can prevent future problems uh, by doing the, the CLIP procedure uh, early after stroke. So those are the uh, some of the uh, benefits. Plus, some people don't feel comfortable having something inside their heart. Uh, their risks of uh, The um, Watchman device include perforation of the heart or the device getting dislodged and and going outside. And um, they have to go across the uh, septum on the upper side. So they have to make a small hole to get to the left atrium. Um, So some people do not feel comfortable. That is safe for them. Uh, With CLIP, we don't enter the heart. We don't stay, uh, we don't make any holes inside the heart. So they feel comfortable that that is a safer procedure, but they both are very safe. Many people, if they've had atrial fibrillation for a long time, uh, typically the um, the earlier you treat, the higher your success rate. Uh, people who've had atrial fibrillation for more than 10 years uh, after a, a MACE procedure, their results are not as good. They may be 80% or 70% success rate. Uh, but people who've developed giant left atria as a result of AFib for a long time, Those people are not very good candidates for return of rhythm. They have so much substrate, so much tissue in the big, large left atrium that you cannot make enough scar tissue. You cannot convert them into sinus rhythm. Uh, Plus, people with uh, bad sleep apnea, uh, they're associated with lower success rate. We don't know the exact mechanism of that, but we do know that that's the case. Um, So, uh, giant left atria, which is very big, upper chamber of the heart, uh, and very long-standing atrial fibrillation, 20 years or so, uh, their success rate is pretty minimal. We, we um, sit together, and Dr. Chako and I, the electrophysiologist and myself, and um, it doesn't mean literally we sit together, but we discuss patients. Some people are clearly beneficial, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. They're young. They're easily treated with catheter ablation. But... Uh, more complex and simple patients, we discuss together and see what is the benefit of one versus the other. What do you think is the success rate? How? What are the complications? What technical challenges do you think you'll have if you do this approach? Or what is the technical challenge if you do this approach? So we customize every patient's disease based on their um, uh, other comorbidities and conditions and then come up with a plan. So sometimes uh, I will do the cryomase procedure. And if there's a problem later on, he can do, go to the cath lab and find a little spot which was missed, and he can fix that spot. Or he, or he can do the catheter ablation. If it doesn't work, we haven't burnt any bridges. I can come back and do the surgical cryomase procedure. The success of cryomase is not affected by whether a person has failed a catheter ablation or not. It's just similar. So that, um, you know, rather than one size fit all, we customize every patient's case based on their atrial fibrillation, the duration of atrial fibrillation, other health conditions, and uh, what are the chances of success. The holy grail has been to find a way that'll cure 100% and have no complications. And as we know, um, nothing is life is for free. So um, we're always trying to find the best lesion set, um, that will affect, and and then there are newer blood thinners who, uh, w- which can reduce the risk of bleeding complications. So this, you know, the pharmaceutical industry has made a lot of strides in that regard. There are newer blood thinners which do not require uh, the patient to undergo blood testing, but the success rate and and they have been associated with lower risk of stroke, um, and less bleeding complications. Some of them, uh, but again. Um, there are complications there there is always adverse effects of either the procedure or the or the drugs and medicines um prevention is important as i said blood pressure sleep apnea weight reduction diabetes heart condition those are all associated with atrial fibrillation so if we can uh, work on on lowering the risk of these conditions uh, in in ourselves we know obesity is a big problem in our country it's been growing and um um if we can control those factors, I think we can we, we, we can hope to see a decrease in the incidence of AFib itself. I don't want to patients to feel anxious that, that they have atrial fibrillation, uh, and I don't want them to feel less affair that it's not a big deal. Uh, both of them can create problems if they don't appreciate that they have AFib, and uh, and that they are at a higher risk of having complications then they may not be so compliant with the medications, blood thinners or beta blockers, slow down their heart, drugs that can clearly improve the outcomes. Uh, but I don't want them to be so concerned that it's a, um, you know, that it's a, a, a death warrant on them. It's not. It's a, a People have had it for a long number of years. As we uh, identify each patient's uh, medical history in chart, we can identify who are at high risk of stroke. It's something called the CHADS-VASc score. We can, uh, there's a lot of literature and studies been done that show which patients uh, are at high risk of having complications. And the CHADS-VASc score depends on their other conditions like congestive heart failure, diabetes, hypertension, previous risk of stroke. And we can identify those patients and treat them earlier and faster so there are treatment options it's not a, a uh, it's not a condition that cannot be treated i mean we have like i said greater than 80 90% freedom from atrial fibrillation and then new technologies to reduce the risk of stroke and even if they need blood thinners there are better blood thinners now so definitely we are much better off in treating atrial fibrillation now than we were 25 30 years ago but that again means the patients have to be aware of the condition and their risks and be compliant with their medications and follow up with the doctors. Thank you for listening to Prescribed Listening from the University of Toledo Medical Center. To learn more about the provider you heard on today's show, visit utmc.utoledo.edu. Prescribed Listening will be taking a few weeks off. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to get notified when we return.